like going on swings, especially under a full moon. I think it's great to be on a swing when the whole park is lit by a full moon. I think it's a fantastic experience. I like jumping in water puddles. And I love the expression of adults looking at me as I'm jumping in a water puddle. They think I'm insane. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. If you've ever seen Whose Line Is It Anyway, you'll know what we mean by improvisation. It's a style of unscripted performance where actors spark off one another, looking to create scenes from nothing. In the early 1990s, I did theatre sports in Sydney for a few years, mixing it with actors like Julia Zemiro and Andrew O'Keefe. I wasn't very good, but I loved walking onto stage with no idea what was coming next. In improv, the key is to seize the moment, say yes to every offer, take risks, and be unafraid of looking foolish. In other words, the rules of improv are basically the rules of politics in reverse. Patty Stiles is known as the queen of improvisation. Born in New Jersey, her family moved to Canada, where Patty was raised in Newfoundland and Alberta. She did her original theatre training at the Loose Moose Theatre in Calvary under theatre sports inventor Keith Johnson. After a stint in London, Patty moved to Australia in 2001. She is the co-artistic director of Impro Melbourne and a founding member of the award-winning Canadian improvisation company Die Nasty. Through her company, Patty Styles Impro, she teaches in a range of settings, from schools to boardrooms. Patty is a three-time nominee for the Elizabeth Sterling Haynes Award for Theatre Excellence. She travels about six months a year, has written two plays, and was the first woman to improvise for more than 53 hours straight. Patty, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thank you. So you first came to improvised acting through uh, work experience, right? When That's you were correct. in high school. Yeah. Uh, and you had the extraordinary good fortune to be going to high school in the place which had what some people would think of as the greatest improvisation, improvised acting group in the world, uh, Loose Moose. Yeah. I mean, there's different, um, there's different streams of improvisational theatre or improvisational comedy, different teachers. Uh, but Keith Johnstone is definitely one of the leaders... Um, one of the innovators, really, um, of improvisational theatre, and he was the artistic director of Loose Moose. They just had their 40th anniversary this past weekend, and it was really nice to see all these old faces and photos, And but it really kind of made me think back to that first moment walking through the Loose Moose Theatre simplex doors and having no idea that when I signed up for work experience that many years later, that would be my career. What attracted you to it as a schoolgirl? I knew I wanted to be an actor. Um, one of the, you know, the cliche stories of the kid that was always, you know, doing shows for anyone that would stop long enough for me to do a show for. Um, and I was doing dance and theatre, and I just loved storytelling. Uh, and my father is a great storyteller. 
And I always knew that that's, that was my passion. So in high school, I was asking people, you know, how do I train? How do I get involved? I was reading autobiographies. And most of the actors' autobiographies I read, they didn't go through the typical university program. Mm -hmm. They were discovered. They took a workshop. They did a random audition. So there seemed like there was a lot of options. The only response I was getting was, well, you go to university. And I thought, well, yes, that's fantastic. But that wasn't really the way I learned. You know, I always struggled with sitting still in a classroom. So I signed up for work experience to be placed at a theater company to understand more about what that life was. And by good fortune, I ended up at the Loose Moose where everything is very experiment. Try it. See if it succeeds or if it fails. If it fails, you learn something, which is even more valuable than succeeding because you've learned something. You just haven't had your ego padded. I couldn't believe the work I was seeing on stage. I couldn't believe the response in the audience. To see a room full of 250 people all responding. I would go to traditional theater and watch 250 people in silence falling asleep, looking at their watch, but applauding at the end and then talking about the costumes. Mm. How can you watch Othello strangle Desdemona and talk about her costume? That didn't seem right. And at Loose Moose, it was full engagement from everybody. It's a brave decision not to go through that traditional path of doing the, the training. And yeah. I suppose I think about uh, a lot of other creative contexts in which... Uh, many of the best journalists didn't go to journalism school, many of the best artists didn't go to artistic school, uh, and there's, there's something about them that, that causes them to eschew the traditional path and, and not to be trained the way in which most people are trained. Did, you, did that cost you anything? Were there things you sort of missed out on in not getting that formal acting training that you'd get here in Australia at NIDA or uh, WAPA or VCA? Oh, yeah. I think... Whenever you make a choice, you gain in one area and you lose in another. That's kind of why it's called a choice. <laughs> if you got the same thing with both options, there'd be no problem. Um, I missed out on classical training. I missed out on theory and history. I had to do that work myself. Mm. Um, and all of that didn't really obstruct me. It was I had to take on that learning. What did obstruct me was how the industry viewed my decision, where directors would look at my resume and go, oh, there isn't a traditional theater school that we can go, oh, you've trained with dot, dot, dot. So that status judgment that I didn't follow the norms, so therefore I am or I am not dot, 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 that worked against me. For how long did that matter? Still does. Really? Yeah. People care now yeah. about whether you were or weren't trained yeah. decades ago? It, for some people it's confronting mm. because they follow a norm because a norm is there. And norm gives people comfort. It gives people security. This is the path, I follow the path. When someone doesn't follow the path, 
then people can go, hang on, I had a choice. And that can be confronting, because what if their path isn't right? What if their path doesn't hold the same amount of security and status that they thought it had? What if it was wrong? Mm. Um, for other people, they put great value in that path. I understand that. Uh, not everybody values improvisational theater. Uh, actually, quite a few people in the arts industry think it's people being silly or rehearsal on stage. They don't see the value in it. And that's fine. That's their artistic choice. Just like some people value Picasso more than Rembrandt, doesn't mean that either artist is less important. Mm. Um, but yeah, for those people who devalue the work or believe in the status quo, it still works against me. So let's go to some of the sort of rules or principles governing, governing improv. Uh, tell us about blocking. Um, blocking is when you refuse to accept an idea and it prevents the story from progressing. Um, people block in life all the time because we block out of fear. We're afraid someone else is going to control us or our future and put us in a situation that we can't control. In life, that's understandable. If a car pulls up with someone you don't know and they say, get in the car, you say, no, that's a block. And that's a good block. It keeps you safe. <laughs> in improvisation, when we're telling stories, you want to remove the fear because you want the performer to be free to go in the story, go wherever the story takes you, because the performer is safe. In a, st a, in a scene on stage, I can get in that car because I am never personally at risk. It's pretend, right? And then the converse of blocking, so, so what you're talking about there is the accepting, accepting the offer. Yes. What we sometimes characterize as yes and, although uh, I know you've spoken before about the notion that, uh, that just saying yes isn't always a form of acceptance. Yeah, uh, people, we're, we're trained to follow patterns and routines. So you can teach improvisation where you give people patterns and routines that they follow blindly. Or you teach improvisation where you remove the fear and give people awareness so they can make choice. Um, that's what Keith Johnstone did to us and for us, which is why quite a few people that learned with him are exploring the art form in different ways and creating with the art form. They're not just repeating what Keith had done because he doesn't want puppets. He wants thinkers and innovators. That's the point. Um, so if you say to a group of students, always say yes. In the very first stages of improvisation, that's great. They've got something to focus on. It helps to remove the fear. And they can see the positive of taking that risk. Mm. Then you have to teach acceptance. It's acceptance of body language, your partner, the situation, the audience, the environment, the music, the lights. It's an acceptance of where you're at. It's, it's a total acceptance of the moment. That's different than just saying yes. Um, it's receiving the input instead of having an objective that you have to do. And that's the, the very important flip in the mind for me. And how do you teach students to remove the fear from that, uh, that experience of being on stage? You create a safe 
positive, supportive environment. Um, so we teach, um, our motto is make your partner look good, which is such a great expression. Absolutely. Like really, if, if the only thing people remember of this whole podcast is that line and they apply it to life, I'd be very happy. Because if you apply it, if you think of when a child enters a room and a child comes in and they've got this painting and you have no idea what it is, but you make them look good, you go, wow, what an extraordinary thing you've created. Could you tell me about it? You immediately value them because you know where they are in life. They're taking in all the information around them that will form them then at some point we think people don't do that anymore. <laughs> but the truth is we do it every day. People check themselves out in storefront windows to make sure that their mask is still applied properly. We are always susceptible to opinion and judgment from our peers and our group and our, our tribe. So why don't we meet each other with, let me make you look good? And when you meet those people, they really stand out in, in, uh, in, in your day, those individuals who you come across who you just feel as though the way in which they're approaching life is making, ma ma wanting to make you feel good. Yeah, uh. the hand of generosity, a smile. Um, it's really sad to watch the world ignore the elderly. Mm. Why? Well, you know, you start talking to someone and they take time. And that's a problem. It's really a problem to give someone 10 minutes of your day. So you lose 10 minutes on Facebook. Like, really, the value of life should be a high priority. And, and we kind of lose that. If you go about life going, how do I make my partners look good? You know, um, I let someone into the traffic. You know, I, I smile at a child that's playing a game. Uh, the other day I, I bought a raffle ticket for the men's shed. Um, and, you know, I went up and was buying the ticket. And the guy was confused with what he was doing. And his buddy was going, no, no, you got to give her this and this. And I said, are you trying to take my ticket? And we started laughing and playing <laughs> around. And as I walked away, I had two tickets in my hand. And I looked back and I said, I'm sorry you gave me two. And they said, yes, there was a gentleman here right before who bought a ticket and said, when someone comes up that makes you smile, you give them this ticket. That's a great story. And I just, like, I started, I had a little tear because it was just so lovely. And I went, yeah, that makes the world feel good. There's a notion of the random acts of kindness day, uh, that one day a year we should just buy an extra coffee for the next person in line, pay the, pay the toll for the person behind you. Obviously, this works less well in the era of electronic tagging. Uh, but just look to, to help others around us. And I suppose what you're saying is to live that way every day. Yeah, why one day a year? That, that seems so stingy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's coffee shops in the center of Melbourne that you can uh, leave money and it will go to buying a coffee for someone who's living rough. Mm. Um, there's um, programs where you can loan money and the money is paid back and then you can re-loan it. 
uh, and it's an, it, they connect with international organizations. So you can donate $25 to a woman who's a seamstress in Lebanon who needs new material for her company. You know, and these loans are paid back slowly. But you put $25, $50 in, and every time it's paid back, you just repay it out. It, it doesn't take much to make your partner look good. Same within life. Um, in relationships, often in conversations, people are not trying to make each other look good. They're trying to communicate what they have to say. And if you just stop and listen or value or actually give your partner the same respect you might give a stranger, like you don't take them for granted. So we apply this in improvisation so that people know that any creative idea that they say is going to be okay. I want to circle back later on to some of the, the broader lessons of, uh, of improv for life. But one of the other things that I, I remember struck me very much as I was uh, doing baby theatre sports uh, <laughs> was that notion that you start off thinking that the aim is to get big laughs from the audience uh, and then uh, teachers, and, and I worked with... Um, uh, Lynn Mills was uh, was one of the one of the people people there. Uh, then try and emphasise to you uh, that it's not about getting what they call cheap laughs. Uh, it's not just about trying to get that immediate affirmation from the audience for uh, for, for a joke, but it's about telling a telling a story. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It also depends on what stream of improvisation you're going into. Um, it's, it's very much the same like dance or music. Um, if you go in to be a musician, do you want to be a classical musician? Do you want to play uh, Latin rhythms, heavy metal, folk? The instrument can be the same, but the application of the notes and the structure will be different. So in uh, Keith Johnstone's work, um, Keith is a playwright. He worked at the Royal Court Theatre. His focus is on theatre and storytelling. Um, the result of improvisation is often comedy. When we're on stage, we're using a lot of different tools to create the story. So if we're doing a comedy show, we know that our focus is to make comedic stories. But that doesn't mean that you sell out your partners for a cheap gag or laugh. Because that goes against the ethics of what you're taught and how we work. And that cheap laugh is all about your ego. It's not about the work or the audience, right? So the audience, in good faith, comes in and they pay their hard-earned money and they trust you. It is our job to honor that contract as best we can. So the cheap laughs, you might get half the audience that giggle. What we want is those roars of laughter. And that comes out of the obvious moment, a moment we can all connect and relate to in that spontaneous arrival of that moment. That's when you get the real release of everybody on stage and off. And I know you've criticised before that style of improv, which is essentially 
a bunch of individuals taking it in turns to be funny. I, I think you use the metaphor of uh, improv as golf, uh, yes. that, that it's, it's eschewing the teamwork that makes for, makes for a good, uh, good, good improv uh, session. Yeah, for the style of improvisation that I like and that I enjoy watching and performing, when people are doing impro golf, where they all show up to the green, but they're all basically playing their own ball, I don't see the magic of improvisation with the creation in the moment and working together as a unit. What I see is individuals surviving and each one trying to top each other in an aggressive competition to be the best. Mm. Um, that to me is not improvisation. It's people who have learned technique and they're applying strategy for survival. Um, when I watch Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery work, um, they're very aware of what they need to produce for the camera. But they're enjoying working together. And you can see it. You can see in their eyes when Colin or Ryan, they say or do something and the other one goes, what? Wait a minute, what's that? You know, <laughs> the call to dance, right? Uh, you can see the sparkle. Mm. And that to me is the delight. Keith would say the greatest skill of an improviser is your ability to inspire your partner's imagination. Not to have the great one-liner, but to inspire someone's imagination. Because then we get to go places we've never been. And that's the joy and the excitement. Um, yeah, I'm not a fan of aggressive topping impro. Mm. That, there's too much of that in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes impro inspires uh, the imagination. Sometimes the scenes completely flop. And one of the things I... I loved one one of the the little tricks I loved about uh, theatre sports uh, was the way in which when a scene had completely bombed on stage, players were taught to walk off waving their hand behind their behind their backsides <laughs> as though they'd uh, they'd just done a terrible fart on stage, but like a fart, it was uh, not a part of them. It didn't say anything inherently about who they were. It was a scene that bombed rather than individuals that 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 were failures. Uh, do you do you find that takes that that philosophy takes a while to inculcate in, in young actors? Oh, absolutely. Um, the minute you enter school, achievement and success is valued above all other. Um, if you are fortunate to have inspiring teachers, you are still in the constructs of an organization that grades behavior where your progression is based on success. Mm. There's a lot of signals being sent in that. I understand the structure. I understand the reasoning behind it. I don't think it's the most helpful. You don't see children throwing up their hand to answer a question unless they absolutely know it's right. And even then, they won't because they're afraid of the judgment of other people who fear that they don't know it. So we're not creating an environment where 
People are curious about learning and are fearless. We're not creating an environment where people understand that taking a risk could teach you something. That failure is an opportunity to process, readjust, and try again. Mm-hmm. Yet, a lot of the great business successes, a lot of the entrepreneurs, a lot of great artists will talk about you need to take risk and the failures were the greatest teachers. So if we go through a process from a very young age where everything is about you need to keep up, you need to deliver, you need to be good, um, you didn't get this mark, you didn't get on the team, that creates a great deal of anxiety in people. So then to have people come into a workshop room and I say, first thing that comes out of your mouth, say it. They have been trained to evaluate every single thing they do and say to meet a standard that has been placed upon them. It's a conditioning. Mm. And it is very hard to break that conditioning. I am not oblivious to the fact of how the world functions. I understand that. And, and there will be people going, well, but that's the world. And you can't go into your job and say, oops, I just messed up. You get fired. And I go, yeah, I know the way, that's the way the world works. I'm saying kind of a shame that's the way it world, the world works. Because I think there's room for both. I think there's room for goal setting and assessment, uh, achievement, forward progression, whatever terminology you want to use, within an ability to allow people to try, risk, understand the benefit of failure. Scientifically, we know we learn more when we fail than when we succeed. If you do something and it works, you feel good, but what have you learned to repeat the pattern? It is a learning, but it's a a limited learning to if you try something and it doesn't work. Um, Both need to be valued and one isn't. So it is very difficult when you get adults in the room, really difficult in a boardroom. Um, what's interesting is it's actually easier with CEOs than it is with middle and upper middle management. Ah, so why is that? Because the CEOs have security. They don't have someone above them judging them. So they have the freedom to ask the stupid question. In the yeah. room. They have the freedom to fail because they've reached a level of success. Um, it's like the, the, the moment in uh, the movie Bull Durham where uh, Kevin Costner says to Tim Robbins' character, who's, for people who don't know the movie, Tim Robbins is a, a young pitcher that's been brought on the team who has immense talent but is a liability as a, you know, just his personal behavior. And they're in the shower room, and he's got these really filthy uh, flip-flops or um, footwear, shower footwear. And Kevin Costner takes them, and he goes up to him, and he goes, when you become famous, you can do this because you'll be considered eccentric. Now, you keep them clean. (laughs) And it really is true. You know, once you reach a level, if you fail on something, people go, ooh, wow, that was an... and a risk and an interpretation. But when you're in the middle and you're trying to achieve something, you take less risks. 
But that's when CEOs and upper management are asking people in middle management, we need the new thinkers, think out of the box, be creative, find solutions. But if you do anything wrong, you'll lose your job. Right. I was thinking as you were saying it, you're sort of positing a model in which uh, status allows you to risk failure. The other way of thinking about it is that by risking failure, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the way of doing well and succeeding. I mean, that's a, an in engine of progress, if yes. you like. Yeah. yeah. Those are the innovators. Uh, so when you're, when you're doing this kind of corporate work, how do you, how do you go about trying to create safe spaces? And I suppose I'm thinking more broadly, is there anything that managers can learn from the way you operate a corporate improv class for how they might run a company? Oh, that's a big one. Um, it's a big question because every single environment is completely different. So you're using different tools in every situation. There is no standard. The one, one of the, I was going to say the one, but there's so many pieces of information Keith has given me. When he teaches, he doesn't have um, a syllabus or a curriculum. And I was his personal assistant for years, and there was a, a university in Montreal that wanted him to come out and teach a program. And they said, well, we need your syllabus. And he said, I, I don't use that. And they said, but we need it. We're a university. And he said, but that's not how I work. And they said, well, without it, you can't come. And he said, okay, I don't come. And I was really confused. I was like, Keith, what's the problem? Just write out what you're going to do. And he said, how do I know what I'm going to do until I meet the people? How can I possibly know what would be helpful for those individuals until I've actually even met them. And I think that's probably really wise information from, for anybody who's um, leading any kind of session. Yes, have an idea of what you want to do. Know your tools. Know the techniques to reach your end objective. Have a wide range of tools that you can use and apply. Then go into that room and see who's there and what do they need. So that seems like a plea for flexibility in some sense. Absolutely. To, 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 be, to be willing to, in some sense, shape the, the means or maybe even the, the goals that you're aiming towards according to the people that you're working with. Absolutely. And I think also flexibility. Um, a lot of HR departments are working really hard to do the best they possibly can. And they're faced with tightening budgets and time constraints. So they're spending a great deal of time, effort, and money bringing people, people in, trying to promote change. You can't change people in an hour. You can create some thought, maybe inspire an idea. That's not going to promote change. People need to explore and explore those ideas in a safe environment with someone that's guiding them. It needs to be reinforced. It needs, it, it, it needs a greater rollout. Mm. Um, but people are following a pattern that has been put into place by organizations. And a lot of these patterns are patterns that have been there for 50 years, but it is the pattern. Just like my not going to university, I broke a pattern. So Patty, taking into account that uh, 
every cor corporate context is different. Uh, what are some of the uh, exercises, games, warm-ups that you, you find sometimes do work to unlock uh, the, the more creative improvisational uh, approach that you want to see? When I'm teaching, I'm watching a lot for body language because you can see in people's body language um, a lot of hesitation, fear, anxiety. Um, there's an exercise that I do that um, I really quite enjoy and it, it works pretty much with all levels. Um, like if people have some impro experience or not, children or adults. Um, and it's called Spitfire. So you have one person telling a story and every now and then I'll say, ding. And when I do, their partner who's been listening gives them a word that has nothing to do with the story. You incorporate that word, you keep telling the story. So in essence, you've got one person kind of on the hot seat who's the storyteller. And as you're explaining it, you can see the people who are the storytellers starting to tense up as they hear what the exercise is. Then you play the exercise and you say, what job was hardest? And the majority of people will say the word giver was harder than the storyteller. Because the word giver has to think outside of the box and they don't have anybody inspiring their thought. Mm -hmm. But everybody thinks beforehand that it's going to be the storyteller that has the hardest job because they're the person that the focus is on. But when you inspire someone's imagination, it's not as hard. Also, it's a nice exercise because two people are sitting together, so you don't have the whole room staring at you. I'm controlling the dings, so there's a freedom and flexibility, so I can kind of gauge the rhythm of what's going on. Um, I encourage the listener to actually listen and enjoy the story. So you've got someone looking at you and paying attention and giving you positive feedback. That helps to remove the fear of telling the story. Yes. And often people surprise themselves in how they use the word. So there's laughter and play. The laughter, the play, the reducing the stress, the taking the focus off of achievement into the experience, um, removing control, creating connection, a sense of warmth, all of these things start helping to create the foundation in which we can start developing the impro work. Do you find that uh, physical warm-ups are important in terms of unlocking a creative mind? Do you spend a lot of time worrying about you know, shaking down shoulders and uh, uh, freeing people's, uh, people's vo voice box? Depends on the group. If I've got an hour with a group, um, there may not be time to do that. However, if I walk into a room and it's clear everybody's shoulders are right up around their ears, then their breath is going to be restricted, their muscles are going to be restricted, they're not in a, in a place of being relaxed, so that can be helpful. If I walk into a room and everybody looks quite relaxed in their bodies, why not get to the work? If I have a whole weekend, then I probably would. If I'm working at a improvisation festival, um, usually later in the week, I definitely would because people are getting tired from workshops, evening shows, parties, 
so people aren't taking care of their bodies so then it becomes even more important mm. um, vocally again it depends if I see people really tense I probably would do some breathing exercises um, if people were going to do a show that night and we had a eight-hour workshop then I probably would because I want them to be in a good place. So it really depends on the dynamics, but that's the fun of it. And you yourself, when you're going on stage, don't do much of a warm-up for impro, right? Not for, uh, I don't personally. Um, I do vocal warm-ups in the car. I've got a couple of different vocal warm-up tapes, so I'll be doing... Any favourite ones you want to share, share with us? <laughs> Things, things people can have in mind when they have to give a speech? Uh, the Well, the one actually that I did coming in today, because uh, Knowing Podcast is about the voice, um, there's a series uh, by Larry Bridge, Bridges, Larry Bridge, Larry Bridges, uh, where he goes through vocal exercises. Um, and he very clearly kind of sets it up where you place your tongue in your mouth. Um, you know, so if you're doing... Uh, that zzz sound or keep your lips together your teeth apart and that's good because it helps open mm. um, and I find that even when I do one set of his exercises before I go anywhere as I'm talking now I can feel I've got more breath in my voice yes and I don't have to worry about my breathing I can be relaxed and focus on you where if I hadn't done that I would probably be aware of my voice not being warm right right so um yeah so that's that's a, a good one to do there's a lot of vocal coaching you can you can find um before a show i like to connect with my fellow players um if my body is tired i'll find a corner and stretch if i'm feeling disconnected or foggy i'll grab someone and say hey can we play a word at a time story but I don't like to be forced into playing hyper warm-up impro games because that's not useful for me. Mm. Um, going on stage, your energy immediately increases. The anxiety goes up. You know, uh, the traditional stage fright kicks in. So I want to be as calm and prepared so that I'm going to be more present and available. Other people need to run around. Other people need to play the games and do the quick, fast. Great. That's what they need. I just need something different. Do you get scared going on stage? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's kind of funny. You get scared for different reasons at different points in your career. So when I was first improvising, I was terrified that I would be a failure and nobody would let me perform anymore that I would let everybody down, that I'd be asked to leave the company. Um, now, depending on the group or the show, because I've been doing it a while, people set expectations of me before I step out. And that can be a real difficult mind game. Um, if you try to meet everybody else's expectations instead of meeting your own. So if there's been too much media or publicity around it, I will feel the anxiety go up inside because you feel like, oh, oh, you know, what if they find out I'm a fraud and I'm a failure and I'm not as good as everybody's been saying? 
Um, and that's just human nature. We all do that. We all do that. Um, different ways, different levels. Some people have really great tools in being able to deal with it. Um, I'm suspicious of anybody who says they never go through it. I believe that some people go through it less and they have great technique. But to say they never go through it, I guess maybe because I always go through it, I, I can't imagine it not being there. And I think it serves a useful purpose of keeping me honest. Getting the butterflies to fly in formation. Yeah. Yeah, there's the, um, you know, the backstage kind of, the, the, the stage manager comes in and goes five minutes and everybody runs to the toilet. <laughs> you know, it's uh, just those little anxieties that we have because you're going to step out in front of a group of people who have an expectation of you. When you think of in school, if you were asked to stand and read a paragraph, you know, uh, if, you, if you're, you know, okay, we're all going to read this story, everybody's going to take a paragraph and we're going to go one by one. The minute a teacher says that, all the kids in the room count how many people are in front of them, count down the paragraphs, find the paragraph they're going to read, and keep reading that paragraph to make sure there isn't a word there that they don't know. Because we protect ourselves from failure. And think about schools. I mean, you also do teaching within schools. Yeah. And uh, uh, for many of us, I guess, that when we think back on teenage years, we think about the fears, the self-consciousness, the worries about ourselves. And now you're act asking those kids to perform in front of their classmates with no script. Uh, how do you make sure that what you're doing with Impro isn't just making teenage years worse for kids? Yeah. Um, you really have to watch the body language and you really have to be aware of what's going on in the room. Mm. Um, there was one class I was teaching here in Melbourne um, where the teacher left the room and the class became very disrespectful to me. Not to my face, but I could tell that because in many ways playing improvisation is like developing your skills in basketball. You become very aware of the full range of vision. So I could see in my peripheral that there was a kid making faces at me or someone was mimicking me. Um, some of the kids were taking the opportunity to not listen and to talk. Typical teenage things. I remember doing that. You have a substitute teacher. It's like, ooh, game on, right? And it makes sense because in your teenage years, it is about starting to claim your space in society. It is about rebelling against authority. It is about... So, of course, if you've got a new teacher, it's a whole new status game, right? But while they were doing it to me, they were also doing it to each other. So any of the kids that were trying to do the exercises... We're getting little, you know, uh, the, the verbal responses that teenagers master. And so I went, okay, everybody sit down. And they did. I said, that's it, we're going to stop. There's all these blank faces and they said, what? I said, well, clearly you guys are not interested in this. It, It's not my aim in life to come into a room full of strangers and 
you know, give you a crappy experience. So you don't want to do it. That's cool. We've got another hour left of class. Just sit and chat with each other. About a minute later, someone goes, Miss, you can't do that. So what do you mean I can't do that? So well, you're the teacher. You have to run the class. I said, no, I don't. I said, I'm a human being who deserves respect. And you were being disrespectful. So really, I have to keep you safe and you need to be in this class, which you are. A few more minutes go by. But you have to do it or you won't get paid. I said, I don't care about that. Money is money. But why would I be in here for an hour with you, you making fun of me behind my back, you talking over top of me, and you're treating me with disrespect? So what's the point? Why would I be working so hard to try to create a positive experience for you when you're working so hard to create a negative one for me? Clearly the signal is you don't want to do it. So let's not push the boulder up the hill. A couple of minutes later, we were enjoying it. I went, really? How are you enjoying it? You were making comments to the other kids, which is really disrespectful. You know, if you want to be respected and listened to in life, you don't do that to other people. So what were you enjoying? Well, it was fun to hear people's ideas. And, you know, when so-and-so did this, we'd never seen them do that before. I went, cool. Well, maybe you've never seen them do that before because there was so much judgment that came after they did that. Maybe you need to value people. So, it, you know, it kind of became a little lessons of life. And then I was like, well, do you want to do some improv? And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went, okay. Well, then here's the contract. If I say I need your attention, know that what I'm doing is I want to give you information to play another exercise so you guys have a good time. I'm not trying to control you. I'm trying to give you something to play with. So if you listen to me and I give you that, then you guys get to have the experience. We can continue. Yeah, 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 yeah. They got up. We started doing it. About 10 minutes later, the teacher came back in the room and was shocked because she stood there and all these kids are jumping around the room and saying yes and supporting each other and someone would come in front and everybody would applaud and after the class she went what did you do to them but you know I know as a guest teacher I have freedom and flexibility and really if she said well we're not paying you for a workshop that you didn't teach I go fair enough I've made that call but really why go through that if the kids don't want to do it why force them it's a guest it's one hour of their life Right, um, So you really have to pay attention to where the improvisers are at, the kids are at. Keith taught a workshop for a bunch of teenage boys, and I love this story. Um, he went in, and they had no interest in doing improv. They had no interest in standing in front of each other and lowering their status. So Keith said, I can teach you how to talk to girls. <laughs> And this whole room goes... That's like having superpowers for a teenage boy. Exactly. This whole room goes, what? And he goes, well, they're acting exercises, but they're really useful. Would you be interested? Yes. Suddenly they were improvising. And he was teaching them to listen, to make your partner look good, to value what they were saying. 
status, you know. Um, so he was working with all the basic skills of improvisation. It was just framed a different way to inspire their imagination. So it sounds like a lot of what you're doing, Patty, is getting people to put their ego off to one side, uh, not to not to always think about themselves, but to think about their role in a in a team or in a group. Absolutely. Um, Ego can be a motivator. Ego can also be a big roadblock. Mm. Um, I think ego has led many people astray. Um, connection, availability, awareness, met with tools and techniques and kind of a clear understanding of what you're trying to achieve, I think is more useful than ego um, in improvisation and in life. You wrote a blog post a couple of years back about uh, what if we lived our impro ethics in which you imagined a world in which we looked at the homeless, the poor, the lonely and the elderly as our scene partners and thought about our role as making them look good yeah. or inspiring them. Uh, tell us more about what that world would look like. Oh, utopia. Um, when we were talking about blocking, we block because of fear. We block because we fear someone else changing us or controlling us. I think we do that with people that are in marginalized areas of society because we fear losing what we have. When you look at the discussions around immigration, you know, and the discussion is everywhere in the world, people are afraid of losing their jobs, their homes, their livelihood. Of course there's a fear in that. Is it a founded fear? Are there other options? Those are the discussions. But the initial response to block because we fear how this will change us. The same applies to people who are living rough. We fear engaging with them because we fear what that means to us in the next moment. We fear joining a volunteer organization that can help promote change because we fear how that's going to change our rhythm of life and what commitment will that make. I think we also fear looking at the humanity of people in marginalized areas of society because we fear looking at the possibility of our lives ending up that way. People fear talking about death because it's an eventual, so we pretend it doesn't exist. If we don't have those conversations, we can't promote change. Mm. It's very arrogant of us to ignore anyone on the planet. And we can from a place of privilege because we can live our daily lives without thinking about other people. It's. It's hard to make 
global change as an individual. But you look at the rallies that are happening right now, when many voices stand together, or when people want to inspire change, change can happen. So if we looked at the homeless as our scene partner, can we help? And what help could that be for you? It doesn't, if you're someone who's already living on a very tight budget, get that. Can you be a voice? A voice doesn't cost you. Can you volunteer your time? When you are clearing out the closet, instead of putting it in the trash, can you make that extra effort to give it to a organization that can gift that clothing onwards? There's a lot of great social enterprise that's happening. Uh, there was a wonderful podcast I listened to, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who or where, and I've been trying to find it, so if anybody knows and they tell you, I'd love to know. If you find it, we'll put up a link in the show notes. Um, and it was a fellow who used to work with, I think, the Packer Organization. Um, and he was talking about that we need to start promoting change not by looking at wealthy organizations giving away money, but looking at solutions that make money. So there was a bank, again, an Australian bank, and I don't remember. I'm really good at remembering the emotion and not the great on detail, um, that recognized that you can see a pattern when people are starting to get into financial trouble in how they're not paying back, for example, their mortgage. And if you can step in and offer help before someone ends in the hole, so financial counseling and services, then that person doesn't end up in bankruptcy. They continue being an excellent customer. They also become a more loyal customer. And you actually benefit because costs of bankruptcy are more than the cost of putting money into the program to stop the bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So you solve a problem by talking to a corporation about how they can make money. That's really clever. Absolutely. But that's inspiring your partner. So what can we do to solve problems to make our partners look good? We don't have to follow the common patterns of today. What about now uh, with our spouses and our life partners? Uh, you spoke before about uh, us sometimes feeling that we're in competition with them rather than making them want to, uh, want to look good. Um, why does that happen and how do we uh, apply improv to improving the quality of our relationships? Um, why does it happen? I think there's a lot of whys. Um, I, speaking for myself, when I'm feeling that I'm not being heard, I go, okay, why? Is it because I'm not being heard? Is it I have different expectations on the conversation? Is it this is something really important to me and I haven't communicated that? Um, or am I in a place right now where I'm feeling vulnerable and afraid, so anything that looks like a negative is appearing louder? Because I think when you're questioning, you need to question the full thing. 
Um, and then how can I communicate that in a helpful way? Um, I think we end up in competition with our partners. And it's kind of weird. With a friend, we give friends much more freedom to fail, much more freedom for behavior that might annoy you. And we don't do that with our partners. Hmm. Because there's more at stake with the person that you're most intimate with. The fear of rejection and the fear of failure of the relationship is so high that we, we hold on even tighter in a way. If a friend doesn't return a call, you think they're busy. If your partner doesn't return a call, you wonder what's wrong. And then if it goes longer, you wonder what's wrong in your relationship. Right? Like the, the progression from they, the phone could be dead <laughs> doesn't enter our mind. It's, are we over? Um, and that's all fear-based. Mm. That's all fear-based. Um, coming into a conversation to listen instead of to talk. Coming into an argument to hear instead of being right. Uh, to value the offers of your partner, um, to maybe inspire their imagination on how you're communicating what you're communicating, to give people freedom to make a mistake in language in the conversation is important. Sometimes we don't have the words and we say things and it's like, what? Um, giving space for honesty you know, um, I know sometimes with my husband, I'll go, huh, I'm feeling this now um, based on those words. I try very hard. It's not always, I'm not always perfect, thank goodness, uh, to blame. You know, your words made me feel this. It's like, well, those words have prompted or triggered this feeling. Made me sounds like it was planned or it was his agenda um, and if I feel that that emotional place is going to stop me from listening I'll go okay hang on I think I need to sit with this emotion for a moment because I don't feel like I'm listening right now and that's an honesty and I think sometimes for us I know it stops me from responding with the trigger of defense mm. it gives me a moment to go why am i feeling that am i feeling that because of this conversation or am i feeling that because of something else in life am i feeling that because that's a personal fear wow okay what's that but that i guess opens the door for me to be wrong and sometimes in arguments we don't want to be wrong we want the other person to say we're right because we fear failure. <laughs> oh, it comes back to that. Um, no, that's they're really important important lessons from the stage for life. Yeah. What about something more mundane? How does improv affect how we should use our smartphones? <laughs> oh, it's really interesting. All the the data coming out about how we're being trained and how the algorithms like how they figured out how to train us to look at our phones 
even things like when you open an app, uh, if it's a communication or a social media app, if they delay the you receiving the information, if they say, it's downloading, hold on, when you see that someone's replied, it's a bigger hit, I think, of dopamine than if it was there immediately. So they have learned how to manipulate our emotional responses to keep us engaged with the product. Whew, that's so, scary. But how should, how should we respond? I mean, presumably you're going to say we should check our phones less often and perhaps not spend uh, date nights staring into our mobile phones. But are there other things yeah. too in terms of how uh, we, we ought to incorporate smartphones into a good life? I don't think on your deathbed you're going to be saying, I should have checked my phone more. <laughs> That's a very crisp way of putting it. I was, it's funny, I was thinking about this yesterday when I was driving. I was thinking, when I check a social media platform, if I limit myself to an hour in the morning and an hour at night, that's two hours a day, that's 14 hours a week. 14 hours a week I've spent reading other people's opinions and comments. That's not conversation. It's not engagement. It's not embracing the wonders of the world. It's opinion and comment, often given very loosely and in a kind of a trigger happy, we all need to respond. Are we starting to be conditioned to trigger responses on everything? Is that why road rage is going up? Because you can click like on something. So if someone cuts you off, you should be able to respond immediately. Are we losing our social kindness, our manners, because they don't need to apply anymore because we can, we've got all these platforms of immediate response without any, you don't have to deal with the consequences. Mm -hmm. If this is starting to train us in patterns of behavior, are those patterns of behavior that will serve your life, add joy, add connection, add value to your relationships? Maybe not. Maybe for some people, yes. You know, for some people, it, it really helps them in communication. For me, with so much family and friends overseas, it helps me to feel connected with people. I don't think I need 14 hours a week to do that. When in reality, I could have called 14 friends and had an hour-long conversation with each one of them, mm -hmm. which would have been much more yes. valuable. Um, it's mind sugar. You know, it's a, there's a place for it, absolutely. But knowing that people are calculating how we respond to manipulate us to respond should be a duty, a call to all of us to go, hang on, someone is manipulating me to do this so I feel a way that they want me to. You're taking away my organic feelings? 
We need to be mindful of that. Mm. Mm. Especially when you're sitting in a park with your child who's climbing on swings and trying to get your attention so you can engage in these moments of life and you're checking what someone wore on the red carpet or how many likes you got to a silly photo that you put up. Why are we going to concerts and looking through our phone at the concert? You've bought a ticket to a live event and you're watching it through your screen. I don't get that. Especially when people say, please don't videotape it. But nobody kind of gives any respect to that anymore. That's someone's work that you're taking. There's, there's so many things that kind of, if we applied the rule of make your partner look good, maybe we stop and think. Yes, and your partner is not your phone. No, no, your partner is not your phone. You know, I challenge everybody to, you know, spend, try one morning a week or try one hour somewhere in the week where you put your phone somewhere and you don't access it. I've been trying to put my phone on my dresser instead of next to the bed Mm. so that I don't check it the first thing that when I wake up. And because I travel so much, that's hard because I want to connect with home. But I find that I actually have a better outlook in the day if I have less time, less screen time. Yes. can certainly empathize with that. Yeah. And I think people hearing that, a lot of people will go, yeah, me too. So then why are we doing it? Because it's sugar. Yeah. Because they've calculated our responses. Patty, let me wrap up with a couple of final questions. Yes. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um... Meet your own standards, not other people's. Because often other people's expectations of you limit your possibilities. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? The world, the issues of the world are not black and white. Um, when I was. Now believe the issues are black and white? No, uh, that they're not black and white. There's a lot of gray area. Right, right. When I was in high school, if a friend of mine had a crush on someone, that person was off limits forever. Then when you've had numerous relationships, you know, successful and failed, and you see someone who's been in a marriage and the marriage has ended and they've maintained friendship and everything's been resolved... And then another friend in the circle becomes interested in one of those partners. And many years have passed. Why can't those two individuals who no longer have any romantic contract with anybody else have a romantic contract with each other? Yes, there might need to be conversations and check in because that's respectful. But it's no longer a yes-no absolute. Hmm. Hmm. When are you most happy? I'm most happy when I'm in the present moment. Um, And that is when I'm in the garden and I'm just gardening. Um, When the lorikeets arrive at my house and I've put seed out and I'm watching them. When I'm playing with my goddaughter. When I'm watching my rock star niece, Cobra, on stage singing heavy metal and just 
being in that music with her, when I'm sitting with my husband, when I'm looking at the sun, when it's, when I'm on stage, when I see my partner's eyes light up, when I feel inspired, really when it's the moment. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Play. What sort of play? Play games. Okay. Play with, uh, with my goddaughter. Um, I'm guessing when you say play games, you're not talking about Scrabble. You're, uh, oh, you're... no, I'm talking Scrabble. Yeah, okay. Play right. board games, yeah. I thought you were, you were going to have some funky theatre sports game that, oh. uh, that you, you just invented for the purpose of uh, playing with your goddaughter. Oh, anytime you play with a child, you're improvising. Anytime you have a conversation, you're improvising. Um, Do you have a favourite improv game to play with kids? Sorry to interrupt. I don't, I, I mean, Keith has a, an exercise where you, 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 you kind of try to inspire ideas. And I have a version of that that I, I like to do with kids. So if they go, ah, oh, uh, my goddaughter right now likes to, her Thomas the Tank Engine likes to get in trouble. So it'll be stuck in an iceberg or trapped under rocks. And then she's got the octonauts. And uh, no matter what they do, they can't rescue. Like she's, she's really in this world of kind of options, mm. right? So I'll go, ah, you know, who should arrive? And she'll go, this one. And I'll go, right, why? Because of this, excellent. What can he do? He can do this, fantastic. Does it work? No, hmm, why not? So it's, Anything she says is right, but following the story from that moment and just in fueling the imagination more. I love that because you never know what's going to come out of a kid's mouth. You must be like a dream godmother for a child who's involved in an imaginative play. I can just, your, your philosophy of just taking the idea and running with it must be so joyous for kids who are often struggling for our attention or, or struggling to get us into their world of, of imaginative play. I hope so. I was very lucky to have a lot of uncles and aunts um, that were very playful for me. Mm. Um, my, my niece, heavy metal rock star, and uh, her sister and brother, who are equally brilliant. Um, one's a photographer and visual artist and the other one's in business. When they were little, and this is going to sound a bit disgusting, but honestly, it was very safe and tasteful. Uh, they had all this plastic food, you know, the little easy bake ovens and all the little plastic things. And they were putting the weirdest combinations together. It was like a pineapple with a, a fish and a, a chocolate, right? And they'd give it to me and I'd pretend to eat it. I'd nom, 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 nom. Oh, it's delicious. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> so no matter what combination, I was like, ooh, and I'd name it. I'd go, ooh, the pineapple fish chocolate souffle. Ooh, delicious. <laughs> and after eating about five or six, I'd go, ooh, oh, I'm, not, I'm not feeling so well. And they would start to giggle. And then I'd start making vomiting noises but I'd chase them around the room as if it was vomiting on them. <laughs> they love that game. And it was just the silliest, silliest, stupid game. 
But for them, it wasn't about the vomiting. That made sense in the story because they were ridiculous things. They liked their ridiculous being valued and then they liked being chased like a game of tag. So we played that one Christmas. That game lasted five or six years. Every time I came to visit, <laughs> Auntie Patty, can we play the throw up game? And I'd be like, yes, okay. Ooh, mmm, that's the tuna popsicle. <laughs> and all it was was abandonment to the silly. Right. And the classic yes and exercise. Totally. Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures apart from the throw up game? <laughs> that's an interesting question because guilty dictates something that's wrong based on other people's opinion. Um, I mean, guilty can also be legal. I have no unlawful pleasures. Um, but if I look at guilty as other people's judgments, then no, because my pleasures are not for your judgment. Um, like when you first say the question, I go, well, I like Star Trek. But that's not a guilty pleasure. That's a choice. It's something I like. And if you think Star Trek's silly, well, that's your opinion. But why should I be made to feel guilty? Because I like something that someone else doesn't. You know, um, I love Star Trek. I, I've been recently watching the classic series again. I have a Star Trek uniform. Do you I wear it often? I wear it when I've gone to conventions. Very good. Yeah, so um, I like playing board games. You know, it's nice that there's more and more people coming forward and saying, yeah, me too. Because we shouldn't be made to feel guilty about an activity that's fun. Um, I like going on swings, especially under a full moon. I think it's great to be on a swing when the whole park is lit by a full moon. I think it's a fantastic experience. I like jumping in water puddles. And I love the expression of adults looking at me as I'm jumping in a water puddle. They think I'm insane. I think you're insane for not having fun. <laughs> um, other guilty things. I like ice cream. Um, yeah, but even those, they're, they're not guilty. I, I like to make a bowl of popcorn. And when I get in the bath, I like to have a book and a glass of wine and let my bowl of popcorn float. And when it comes around, I have another handful. But all, I've got a, a spoon that's a plastic child spoon shaped like an airplane. And I use it when I eat ice cream because it makes me happy. <laughs> Other people I know would shake their head and think that's childish and immature and I should grow up. And their judgment would dictate it to be guilty. But they're not guilty. They're just pleasures. I love it. And finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? My father. Um, the Forester. Yes. My, my father um, grew up in difficult times. Um, there would have been a lot of indications in his world as a young man for him to act bitter, angry, or selfish. He wore the clothes that he wanted to wear, and he didn't care what people thought, much to my mom's chagrin. Um, 
but he would wear his work boots and his work pants and a t-shirt stained with paint and maybe coffee. But if you wouldn't take the time to meet the man, too bad. He was the first person to extend a hand of help to anybody in need. He was always kind to children and animals. He always looked at if someone was worse off than him, it was his duty to do something to improve their world. Because there was a time, I, I came along very late in my parents' lives and my dad, you know, grew up during the depression. He was a hobo, he rode on the back of trains. He um, almost punched a man to get into the army because he felt it was his duty and it would be a job where he'd be fed and he could send money home. He always took someone based on how they treated other people. Um, he didn't care if you arrived in a Rolls Royce or by foot. Who are you? Um, he stood by the people he loved. He taught me a great deal, a great deal. Um, and it keeps unfolding in moments where I see myself do something and I go, dad would have done that. I do this because I witnessed him doing that. What was his name? John Atfield. When did he pass away? Uh, ten year, almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Sounds an extraordinary man. Oh, absolutely. Um, he could make anybody smile. He was a great storyteller, um, very cheeky. And for a man who in many ways had a rough beginning, had the most brilliant twinkle in his eye. You know, he'd, when he had to start using a cane, he started using the cane as a guitar to make people laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he, um, an extraordinary man. Absolutely extraordinary man. Thank you for sharing his story with us on the Good Life podcast today. It's been a, a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the very inspiring questions. You had me thinking, which is great. Me too. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.